Today's program was brought to you by Consider Bardwell Farm, Vermont artisan cheese producers in Vermont. For more information, visit considerbardwellfarm.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to Chef Story. I'm Dorothy Can Hamilton of the International Culinary Center, and today we've got a great show for you. We don't often get um, chefs with this title, but today we have one of the outstanding pastry chefs from the James Beard Foundation, and in fact, this year's award winner. And if you don't know what that means, there's only one pastry chef in America chosen every year as the outstanding pastry chef. And Brooks Headley who's the executive pastry chef at Del Posto in New York City, is the man. And we're here today, we're, and we're actually sitting in Del Posto in one of the private rooms downstairs. If you get here, you have to rent this private room. It's just surrounded by wine and beauty and chandeliers and glasses. But anyway, on to <laughs> <laughs> welcome, Brooks. It's so wonderful to have you here. Excellent, yeah. I'm psyched, uh, psyched to do this, for sure, so... So we're, we're going to get your childhood and go through your whole thing, but how, you're, you're an English major in college, and you love literature, and you like to write, yeah. and pastry is so visual and visceral. How did the two work together in that fantastic brain of yours? Um, honestly, like when, uh, for, like for me, starting to do dessert pastry, um, it's the only thing I've never worked on the savory line. I've always done dessert. And it isn't necessarily because I intended it to be that way. It was definitely accidental, which, you know, happens to a lot of us in the in the restaurant world. Like, we get, we sort of get to where we are, it's an accident, and then we find out we really like it. So that's definitely what happened to me. Um, and Well, let's get into your path, because there's, you're a drummer, you did a lot of interesting things that wouldn't necessarily think that it was going going into cooking so right right no, it, no. none of it really kind of makes it doesn't really make sense at all all right but, so uh, you're from maryland yeah i grew up in the suburbs of baltimore so baltimore and deep deep in the suburbs yeah so uh so when i say i'm from baltimore people are like oh baltimore it's gnarly it's like well yeah i didn't really live in that part but you know yes it is so so when you grew up Mother, grandmother, cooking sure, in the sure, kitchen. Sure, sure, Yeah, I mean, it was What the, kind of background of food? Um, my mom's side of the family, uh, my grandmother's side, Italian, um, from Calabria. Um, our, my great-grandparents came over from Calabria. So a lot of what we cooked as a kid and ate as a kid for family gatherings and parties and holidays was, you know, traditional... Italian, but not more like Italian American. Um, even though my grandmother's parents were actually from Italy, so that's that's the style that I've always known my whole life, and that's the food that I've always known. And then, interestingly enough, I've pretty much only ever worked in Italian restaurants or almost Italian restaurants. Um, I've never ever worked in a French restaurant. I worked in a at a Ritz Carlton for I don't know six months, um, and that was it. Other than that, it's always been under an Italian sort of framework of looking at food. And because that's what I had growing up, it always just made sense. So, so um, well, let's. what kind of student were you when you went to school? I was a super nerd. Um, I, I mean, I, I, um, even though, like, when I was, even in high school, you know, I was, I was in a band. And um, that was the first, the first bands that I was in. Um, I was still, you know, I, I think I... I got, like, perfect attendance award, like, as a senior in high school. Like, I never missed a single day. Um, got really good grades. Um, but at the same time, I was in, you know, my obsession was just, like, really crazy punk rock. And that's, you know, that's what we did. My my friends and I, that's what we did when, you know, we weren't, like, doing homework or whatever. So, you know. What were your favorites? Was English your favorite subject? Yeah, yeah, writing, writing. I mean, math, even math today, like, completely freaks me out i had um chicken pox the, the last two weeks of second grade so which i guess was when you really learn how to subtract 
correctly. <laughs> right. And I missed that because I had the chicken pox. So I still can't subtract. I'm terrible, absolutely terrible at subtracting, like like zeros and carrying and all that stuff, Like, which is funny because now that, you know, officially my career is a pastry chef, there's, there's numbers everywhere. But um, that's not really why I like making desserts or, or cooking in general. Um, the numbers part, the technical part, the scientific part, for a lot of pastry chefs, that is what they kind of really get off on is that... That very scientific, very technical, very precise manner let's of doing say, things. Let's take that a, a step further. You know, um, a lot of savory chefs that I know say pastry chefs are very different than savory chefs. They're very... Uh, in fact, at the school, we used to give a test called the predictive index. We gave it to our deans, you know, to see what they were like. And uh, a pastry chef is more analytical, more structured prepares in advance a lot more um yeah, yeah. is it quieter if you go in the pastry kitchen it's it's you know people can work almost alone without the the super team work of a of a mm. on the line right that way and so there's that there's that difference like once you measure out the cake and put it in the oven it's done if you didn't measure right Right, you've got an issue. Whereas on the line, you can add a little right, salt. Right, it's like <laughs> just, it's 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 you're Tinkering. you're cooking sort of from the hip, you know. Yeah. yeah. I mean, not entirely because there are st- sort of structured recipes that you're working you're working with that you've, and it's all about repetition when you're working on the line, you know. When when you've made the the spaghetti with crab a million times, it becomes second nature, even though you, you're not necessarily like using a scale to weigh out those things in the middle of service, you know. Um, so, yeah, dessert and pastry, of course, there is that part where you are scaling things out and then baking them. Um, for me, though, I like to and I like to really instill this in all of my staff that, that comes to work here is, is to not think of dessert as different than savory food because, to me, it's all the same. Like, it's... It's all food. It just it needs to be seasoned. Um, I mean, desserts that are lacking in salt. Not that I'm saying desserts have to be like salted pistachio or salted caramel or salted this or salted chocolate or whatever. But salt is just hugely important in seasoning anything. Um, it just makes food taste sharper, and it drives me completely bonkers if I eat a dessert or go go to a restaurant and and there's something with no salt in it. Are because, you a Malden salt fan? Um, sure, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. Do you have favorite salts? Or um, yeah, I mean, there's that place, um, the Meadow. It's on Hudson Street, down the street. And, uh, yeah, it's it's pretty awesome because they really, they only sell really expensive chocolate and, a, like, a million different kinds of salt. So it's just fun to go in there and, like, try a bunch of stuff. So getting back to your formative years, let's put it that way. Sure, yeah. Um, so is your brain, do you think, analytical? Uh, did you do your homework? Were you prepared? I mean, does it fit the, this, not, I don't want to say stereotype of a pastry chef, um, but the preparedness and well, the measuring. The, right, the preparedness, and I think especially like the music part, um, I've always been a drummer and I've only, only ever played drums. I've never played any other instrument. And part of like, being in a band and creating songs is 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 kind of like mise en place. It's like being totally prepared. So you write the song, you get all the parts, you have a bunch of different people working on it, or three to four people or whatever. You have your bass, your guitar, your drums, your singing. And I'm not talking about this. I mean, this is like pretty grassroots, you know, punk rock band. Like, like we're, we're talking about a two-minute-long song or, or less, you know. And... So it's all about getting that ready and get and getting it set and and then practicing and practicing and it early in you know early in my life that was always in like my mom's basement so because I was a drummer we always had to practice at my house because you can't you can't move the drums you know so um, but then it's like getting like practicing and rehearsing it and getting it so it's tight and then getting your set and then actually getting to play a show which is the most exciting thing the biggest rush in the world is getting to like play music for other people. Um, and it's kind of like, in a way that's um, it's it's like cooking because especially I guess sort of dessert because you're getting everything ready for like the the at the beginning of the day like it's, you're getting all your stuff together you're you're making sure all the different parts click and then you know lunch service starts or dinner service starts and 
you know, that then you have all your stuff and you're getting to then, you know, perform for the audience, the audience being the guest that comes in that's paying money to sit, you know, sit in this dining room upstairs for the next hour and a half, two hours, and, you know, basically just hang out. And, and we're here, you know, our job is hospitality. So, I mean, I don't like to think of it as, like, the chef is the god or I'm, I'm able to do things that you aren't able to do and all this, like, craziness that you hear a lot. Um, it's really just about hospitality. So when the, the guest comes in, it's our job to make sure that they get the, the, a, a blown, a, an experience that blows them away, especially, you know, at a restaurant like this where expectation levels are extremely high for the guests to come in. So it's up to me and, you know, all my cooks and sous chefs to make sure that we have, you know, we have our, our act together, you know, mm-hmm. that we're rehearsed, that we're practiced mm-hmm. and that. But at the same time, it can't come across as being contrived or, or over-rehearsed. It has to be very natural and organic, you know, so... So, what drew you to the drums, and at what age? Um, it's it's weird. I, I, a lot of the things that I've done in my life have been accidents, and that I almost like I'm not a very religious person at all. But certain things, music and food, oftentimes I feel like I'm compelled by this higher force, and I don't really know what that is. But when I think I was in fourth grade, and it was band where band class or whatever we just started and all I knew is that I went home that day and I went up to my mom and I said hey you have to sign this permission slip because I want to play drums like I want to be play drums in the band and she was like okay she's like you never really mentioned anything about playing drums before but I think I was almost like quiet and robotic in this way where I was like well yeah that's just what I'm gonna do and I remember being the first person in line to make sure that, because there were only going to be five people that were going to be allowed to play drums, that I was one of those, those those five people. So I mean, had you had a had you listened to songs and related to the drums? Did you? No, no, no. Idolize Ringo Starr? No, not at all, not at all. It was just I was like, I am going to play drums. Like like I said, in almost like, like this robotic way. And then it was this thing where instantly I loved it. And, and did then, you have a good teacher? Uh, you know what, I don't even remember the teacher or anything specific. All I remember about that specifically was that everyone, like, it was these big, like, round drum cases, and you just had a snare drum, and you stood in the back of the band class, and you had a stand, and you had your snare drum and your sticks, and you st- st- and it was, um, you know, like kind of like marching band, classical-ish music or whatever, but uh, the other four guys, and there was one girl I remember too, had brand new snare drums, and... Um, you're like a little kid. You don't know how to get it to sound good. So they sounded like garbage because they were brand new. And they, were, they weren't the greatest snare drums in the world. But um, my mom and I, we weren't obviously the most wealthy people in the world. So we ended up, she bought a used one. But my used one was all broken in and it sounded way better than the other one. So <laughs> it was like, so it was it was cool because mine didn't look that great. But it sounded way better too, mm-hmm. um, which is definitely... Cool, that know. teaches you something, doesn't it? Sure, sure, Especially sure. Especially at that age. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. It's, it's something that I remember constantly. So, yeah. it, it's here. Well, that, that's great. Did, any any relationship between cooking and drums? I mean, I, I of course, see it constantly. Um, a lot of times it's, if I try to explain it, like, to sort of the layperson or whatever that doesn't understand both things perfectly, mm-hmm. it's sort of goes over their head or it gets kind of lost. But for me, it, it makes perfect sense because, and as I was describing before, like if you're in a band and you're writing songs, like they don't exist. You're making them up. And But at the same time, I'm not talking about being the most original person in the world at all because I like to think that a lot of my cooking is, is stuff that I've just, that I've seen other people do and kind of reinterpreted and sort of repackaged and I don't see that as a bad thing at all and same thing with any any band I've ever been in was sort of very inspired by other music or other bands that I loved you know so um um but it's talking about the drums in particular true true well because then because also like especially for dessert like you know a cake or a cookie or whatever it doesn't really exist until you make it. So you have your flour and your eggs and your butter and your sugar or any variation of those things. And you can make a bunch of different things with that. Um, and 
it's always felt to me just kind of like crafting a song, like a like a really short one minute long song, um, because it neither exists before you put them together and then bake it or play and it. Does it exist after you eat it? True. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, yeah. Very existential. Yeah. I, yeah. I didn't. I didn't. I didn't mean to get. Very, I didn't mean to get that pretentious. Yeah. I thought it no, was being no, the opposite no, of that. No. No. So. Yeah. No. 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 I'm only. Um, it's a, it's but no. It's idea. no. It's true because also like, and that's another thing when you hear a lot about chefs talking about how they're artists or they you know they they're crafting this beautiful art you know, but in the end you know it's just it's it's food you eat it and then it's gone, and I really like that. Like, like, I like spending so much time getting a plate together and then spending that last 20 seconds putting it on the plate and pushing it out and then knowing that it only has to be beautiful for 15 seconds before, as soon as you put your fork into it, it's, gone. it's a mess. Yeah. And then once it's gone, or, I mean, I really like seeing plates come back into the kitchen that maybe, like, a person ate a certain point of it and then the ice cream... There's like a little nub that they, maybe they just started talking and they just kind of forgot about that part. And then it just melts into this like crazy pattern on the plate. Like I love that. Like like a lot of chefs like sort of demand to see like VIPs plates when they come back in the kitchen. Like I want to see if they ate it all or whatever. And they want to see like, a, you know, a plate that's completely clean or like scraped clean. And of course that sort of like pumps up your ego when you see that, especially in a situation like this where... They're long tasting menus, or or where there's just tons of food going out, you know. But uh, but I like to see like like these like crazy patterns on the plate, like where maybe and this goes back to the hospitality thing, like maybe their meal isn't so much about the food; it's so, it's more about their their conversation and their interaction. And that's the great thing about a restaurant is it's two people or three people or four people or however many people sitting down eating, drinking, and talking, and for the most part, like, that's, that's, that's it. I mean, these days, you know, everyone's got, like, a cell phone or whatever that they're on, but that's, I mean, that's sort of the, that's the lure of the restaurant is, is, is the hospitality thing, especially in New York, you know, so everyone, you know, has small apartments, and they come to restaurants to, like, you know, this is their... Our equivalent of pubs in England. Right? Yeah, yeah, totally, <laughs> right. you know, so... Okay, we're going to take a break here, and we'll be coming right back. You're listening to Chef's Story, and today we're listening to... We're talking with Brooks Hadley. Hadley. Listening to Chef Story, and today I'm with Brooks Headley at Del Posto, and we're just talking about what makes him smile when he sees a dish come back from um, <laughs> happy eating, <laughs> and it's always happy here. I think this is one of the. Um, it's probably one of it's it's a groundbreaking restaurant because uh, Mark Ladner, who's the executive chef here, and and Brooks, who who's the executive pastry chef managed to garner four stars from the New York Times for an Italian restaurant. And that has not been done in decades. Yeah. In no, decades. It's pretty crazy. <laughs> it is not, you know, uh, an Italian restaurant did not manage to break through. And the thing that I find fascinating about that is this is an Italian restaurant headed by two American guys who might have Italian in their backgrounds. I don't think Mark does. Actually. No, he doesn't. But, but you have, and, but you do. Ooh. Big question: Can Italian, can Americans uh, cook real Italian food? What does that mean? <laughs> sure. I mean, well, I know, I know. Like as I mentioned earlier, for me, it's a lot of it is comes from you know my background growing up, and I'm half Italian. Like my name is an Italian. I don't particularly look Italian. Like Tony, our chef de cuisine, the other day was like, "You're really Italian? He's like you don't look Italian at all." He's like, "I'm Italian. Like you, I don't know what you are." You know. Um, and with, you know, with Ladner, you know, he's not Italian at all, not even the slightest, but basically is a student of, of Italian inspiration and cooking as, as I'm, as I am too. Um, 
and for me at least, I mean, just just talking to Mark Ladner about food and about pot, like he knows more about dry pasta than I think anyone in, in anywhere. Like he knows everything about it. Like like even it's it's in, it's complete, completely insane. Like different regions of Italy and different, and we've never claimed to be an authentic specifically of a certain region Italian experience here. Um, we get inspiration from, you know, all different regions of Italian cooking, like, and, you know, all the, because Italy itself is, is so big and, you know, the food of Friuli and the food, then the food of, say, Liguria compared to Basilicata or Calabria, Calabria. is completely different, or, or Sicily, you know, so... We we take cues and inspirations from from everywhere, including you know New York City, which we consider like the the, the other twenty first right state. yeah yeah exactly <laughs> because you know obviously the Italian American cuisine and experience is something very specific too, and that because we're uh, you know we are a restaurant in Manhattan in two thousand thirteen we you know we take all our cues from all the different places so you know a lot of the, especially the desser- the desserts here. You're not necessarily going to see them specifically on a restaurant menu in Italy, but it's our, you know, it's our interpretation of it. Give me an example of that. Um, You know, like for me, it's using, say, like using Italian products and using um, Italian inspiration to create a dish while not necessarily like... I don't know. It's 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 kind of a it's sort of a hard thing to to sort of verbalize, but it, it makes perfect sense to me in my head, and it makes perfect sense to Ladner. Um, you know, and we we make sure that everything here feels really Italian, and um, that's the thing about that too. Is like when you know when when Lydia's here, she I mean she's also a wealth of information for. For making sure that we kind of stay on track, you know, so, um, and she's great because, you know, we'll have some new dishes and we'll let her taste them and then she'll know exactly what we need to tweak to get it to be, you know, authentic, authentic, or like I, I was saying, an our version of, yeah. our version of Italian food mm-hmm. too, so, um, it's a really cool thing, like, and, I mean, at, le- at least work-wise, I've, as I mentioned, like I've only really worked in Italian places or places that were almost Italian. Um, Comey in D.C. was was Greek, but had pasta on the menu and was very specifically kind of of the same Italian style. And then Campanile in L.A. Is, 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 was more like New American, but at the same time, pretty Italian too, you know. Mm-hmm. So that's all I've really ever known. Um, I always My joke is that if I got hired... If I left here and I got hired at, at Per Se or Le Bernardin or Eleven Madison or something, I would get fired within a day because my I don't have like a French bone in my body, and the, mm-hmm. it's not necessarily that I don't appro- approve or like that stuff. It's just that I don't. Are the techniques so different between well, your desserts and what you would find in a traditional French pastry? I, th- I think so. Yeah, and because a lot of it, and because I never went to culinary school, and because I basically learned on the job from other chefs that I worked for, other pastry chefs that I worked for, and then just from reading. Mm-hmm. Um, when I first started, I would, um, you know, I would I would work production, I would work service in D.C. at this restaurant, Galileo. And then whenever I wasn't at work, I would be at, there was a Borders down the street on L Street in D.C. I would sit on the floor of the Borders and just read cookbooks, like, over and over and over again, because it was all a very new thing for me. So... It was you know just insanely exciting to like learn new things and well, what was the first thing to draw you into the kitchen and was it did you start in the pastry kitchen yeah yeah, yeah. no I've, I've only ever done dessert um and initially the getting were you drawn to dessert no no not really it, was, it wasn't even anything that we like say as a kid I mean my grandmother made like cookies for like Christmas and stuff like and that was like a big deal but other than that, dessert wasn't really, like, a huge part of my my life growing up. And then, like, when later on, when I was in my 20s and I was in a band, I mean, we would actually cook on tour, which no one ever believes me when I, t- I tell people this because 
they're like, ah, oh, you're in a punk band, you're on tour, you're just like drinking and doing drugs and stuff like that. And I mean, we didn't do any of that stuff. And we actually carried a milk crate around in the van that had a couple of saute pans and a bottle of olive oil and a thing of pepper. <laughs> And because we would we wouldn't we didn't stay in, at hotels we'd stay right. at people's houses. I see. Um, yeah. Or I mean we stayed at, at you know whatever kid set up the show in North Dakota mm-hmm. or or Wisconsin like we'd end up staying. You at said house. you were pretty successful. You could make a living off of. Oh no 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 we never uh, no 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 this it, we never made any money. I mean we made just enough money to like get to the next get place. to the next place and then <laughs> and then always 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 had a straight job all of us so you know. It's the kind of thing where as soon as we would get back from tour, I always worked at, like, Kinko's, like, copy shops. That's um, right. You were file clerk for the AFL-CIO? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I did that. I, well, I only did that for, like, two weeks. Oh, okay. That was right before I started working in the kitchen. That's um, something you kind of pick up on, and pa- the outstanding pastry chef for James Beard is an <laughs> AFL-CIO file clerk at one time. Um, yeah, no, I, that was a job I had for two weeks. I, I had just graduated from the University of Maryland after I'd, I'd started college, and then I'd decided I was just going to be in a band for a while, so I did that, and then went back and finished school, but was also in a band at the same time, too. Um, then was out of school, that band broke up, and all of a sudden, I was 27, and there's nothing to do. I mean, granted, I just graduated from college, so I had to get a job, so, and in D.C. at the time, you know, I had an, a degree in rhetoric and writing, wow. um, but, you know, entry-level job like that working in Washington, D.C., you're, you're going to, like, yeah, I, I was a file clerk at the AFL-CIO, right. you know, so and it was it was horrible. It was boring. Like, I had to wear a tie, um, except when there was, like, casual Fridays. It was just horrible. Um, <laughs> I said two weeks. Yeah, two, two weeks, weeks. That's all. Right. And I remember I would get home every day and, like, pull pull my tie off. Like, it was, so and I was, I was so bummed out because the band I was in broke up and had broken up, and I wasn't playing music, and... Uh, but I'd always... You know, I'd always been into cooking, and it was always my hobby. Like, like I loved, loved that show, Great Chefs, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Great Chefs of the West, Great Chefs mm-hmm. of the World, like on mm-hmm. PBS. Like, like I loved that show, and still today, it's like, it's like one of the greatest cooking shows that's ever existed because it was so cool because it was just shots in the kitchen of chefs cooking. A lot of times, like from other countries, so you could barely understand what they're saying with mm-hmm. this like awesome like ambient cooking noise in the background like Mm -hmm. pots clanking Mm -hmm. and the hoods and stuff and like Mm -hmm. and then the narrator's voice kind of like over top of it and like the weird jazz music in the background so cool like i still i still have it on netflix i I think i think you can get clips of it on youtube you know Mm -hmm. but like i love stuff like that and so that's what so how did you wind up in roberto donna's kitchen um well because i had i had had this file clerk job and i remember coming home one day and pulled my tie off and my my ex-girlfriend at, at the time she um I mean she knew that I loved cooking and she had found an ad in the DC city paper it was 1999 so this is like pre-email mm-hmm. and it all it said was pastry assistant wanted and then a phone number which was a fax number um and I think she had been she'd gotten sick of me complaining about this office job that I was like oh, I hate this it sucks terrible blah, blah. so she um I remember she had this old Apple computer. And mm-hmm. It was 1999, so it wasn't really that long ago, but her computer was like... A box? Like, yeah, it was a couple years even before that, so it was this crazy box. And she had, like, typed up, like, half of a cover letter for me to send. And was like, look, I wrote this I wrote this half. You finish it and you send it and get just get a job cooking. So that's what you want to do anyway. Like, we all know that. So... I was sort of outraged. I was still outraged from the wearing the tie, so and I was just ready to scrap. So I think I was like, well, you know, you can't tell me what to do. Like, so almost just to spite her, I finished the letter because I could. I mean, I had an English degree at that point. So, um, and then uh, remember, it was I was living in D.C. and walked up to as a drugstore on Mount Pleasant Street that had a fax service. You know, so I remember I faxed it off to the number, and that's. Thinking that I would never hear anything else from it. I mean, my the resume. I didn't have. I'd never worked in a kitchen before, so my resume was. I, I faked it, but I faked it in a way that wouldn't have even mattered, knowing where it was going. I said I worked at the Maryland Food Co-op, which was like this vegetarian food collective on the campus of the University of Maryland, which is funny because when Lori Alleman, the pastry chef, 
got that resume or whatever, like, she probably looked at that and was like, I don't even know what this is. Or, or, or even if I did, I wouldn't care. But to me, that was all I knew. I didn't know anything about fine dining or anything like that. I um, but at any rate, she ended up calling me a couple days later and was like, you should come in for an interview. Um, and it was weird because it was, yeah, it was Galileo. I didn't know that at the time at all. Like, and all I knew was that Galileo was this really fancy, expensive restaurant in D.C. I'd never been to it. No one I knew had ever been to it. I just heard about it. But I'd heard about it in the, the tiniest possible way. It wasn't like I was really excited to go there. I mean, I thought it was cool, almost like in this weird sort of like performance art thing against myself thing, because I was like, wow, this is, this is a sort of a fancy restaurant. And like, I was like, what if I actually got a job working in the kitchen? Oh, that'd be ridiculous because I don't know how to do anything, you know? Um, so she called me in for an interview and I actually showed up. Uh, and I, I wore a suit because you know, I just graduated from college and, and I, was, to I was told, you go to job interview in a suit, you know? <laughs> I showed up, I was wearing a suit and I had like a manila envelope with a printed out version of the resume that she already had, you know? So She must have been impressed. Well, I think she was, I think she was really freaked out because she, um, I remember she sat me down in a, kind of like a room like this, like a private room and she, it was a Saturday afternoon and her apron was kind of like splattered with sauces and stuff. And uh, she was probably on her, like, third or fourth cup of coffee for the day and was, like, she needed to get out of there. So she was very animated and something that I learned to love about her later, of course. Mm -hmm. um, but basically did everything she possibly could to try to not get me to not take the job because I'm this, I'm, I'm a square. I walk in with a, in a suit, like, who, who does that to get a job in a kitchen, you know? Um, and she's like, look, you're not going to make any money. You're never going to see your friends. Was like just going on and on about all this stuff, and like then it was like, all right, well, and I was wasn't like letting up. I w I was I, I think she thought I was going to be like, oh well, that sounds terrible, and I would walk out. And I was like, no, okay, sure, sounds great. And then and then she's like, all right, well, here, let me show you the kitchen. And so she took me into the kitchen, and it was like literally like like a light bulb going off the second I walked in the kitchen where I knew it's kind of like the drums. Exactly, yeah. It's like I said, and it was not intentional. You know, it was, it was, I was just trying to like. I was just, I wrote the letter to sort of spite my ex-girlfriend. Like, it wasn't necessarily because I really wanted to work in the kitchen, you know, so. But literally, I walked in the door of the kitchen, and it was amazing. What like, do you remember? What was the thing that jumped out? I just out remember that it's just the smells, and the smells of, like, a really good kitchen are the best thing in the world. Um, and it's weird because I've worked in hotels, too, and hotels don't smell good. The kitchen's... In a restaurant kitchen, like a really ambitious, beautiful restaurant kitchen, even the like most gnarly things smell good. If like someone with like a thing of tripe, like tripe doesn't smell good, but in a restaurant kitchen, somehow it just has this intoxicating, beautiful smell. It's 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 crazy. And like I remember the kitchen at Galileo. I mean, it was, at the time, it was it was definitely the best Italian restaurant in DC, if not the best, one of the best restaurants itself in DC. Mm -hmm. So it was just the smells just hit me, and I was like, wow, this is insane, you know? So, And then she took me back to the pastry kitchen, which was like this little nook in the back. And um, I remember she had, like, you know, a, a rack with a bunch of stuff that she'd been working on for the day. So there was caramelized hazelnuts, you know, just sugar and hazelnuts pretty much, like laid out on a, on a silk pad, and I'm sure she was going to crumble it up and use it for something. And I remember she tore off a chunk and, like, kind of, like, shoved it into my mouth. And it was really sharp, and it was, I think it might even still been just slightly warm, so it was just made. Mm -hmm. But I'd never even, I'd never seen or tasted anything. anything like that. And it was just like, like my mind was just instantly blown. And she's like, so, you know, you want the job? And I was like, I was like, sure, I'll start whenever. Like, mm -hmm. I'll start tomorrow. And I think I did. I started the next day. Um, well, what, did you, what was the first thing she had to do? Um, peel apples. For yeah. How I, many apples? Uh, I peeled tons and tons of apples, like, over and over again. So the point where I remember where, like, my two fingers here were, like, split open from, like, all the citric all the acid. Because, yeah. um, and then it was kind of gross. Like, I actually had, like, my friends were like, what, like, what are, you, what are they doing to you at this restaurant? And I was like, I just peel <laughs> apples, you know. But it was, it was awesome, too, because, like, I, you know, I didn't understand the idea of, like, moving fast or, or like, all that. I got all of that from working there. But I came into the situation, like, I, I didn't know anything about restaurants, period. I didn't know anything about the culture of restaurants. I didn't know anything about anything about, like, working in, a, like, an ambitious restaurant or, or, any, or, or food 
related thing, period, ever. So every day was like my mind was getting blown, like with this all these new things I was learning constantly, you know. And then I was reading, like reading cookbooks. And I would go home. If I worked at night, I would like bake bread in the morning and at, at my apartment. And I would bring the bread in to Lori and be like, oh, I just made this bread. And, and she would rip off a piece and taste it and be like, eh, it's not so good. And then I'd bring in some the next day. She's like, you know, it's a little better. And then she'd look at me and go, listen, there's no money in bread, so just give it up. Like, she, was, she just cut to the chase constantly. Just like, I mean, obviously, like, my mentor um, and taught me a million things because she taught me how to do stuff, not in a school situation, but in a... Sure, in, in a, real time. Right. So, you know, I didn't even know what creme anglaise was. I didn't even know what it, how you spelled it, like, because I didn't know anything about French mm-hmm. desserts, and I never had anything like that as a kid. So I, I like, I just pictured it in my head as like C R E M O N G L A Z E, like creme anglaise. I don't even know what that is. And so she would say, like, "Have you ever made creme anglaise?" I'm like, "I don't even know what that is." And she's like, "Oh my god!" All right. So she would take me over to like the the line where the, and I'd have to, and she would teach me how to make it in between like two like really gnarly dudes like with like veal stock like bones flying everywhere and that, that hated my guts because I was you know taking one of their burners I was taking one of their burners and I was like and I was working pastry like like who works pastry like yeah. what kind of jerk does that like yeah. this is what you do like right. like super macho yeah I mean especially back then like the the kitchen was just like this like macho pirate ship you know so um, as a lot of kitchens were so we're going to take another break here and we're going to Come back in a minute and continue talking to Brooke. Welcome back. You're listening to Chef's Story, and I'm Dorothy Can Hamilton, and today my guest is the executive pastry chef of Del Posto Restaurant, Brooks Headley. And we were just talking about his early years as an apprentice pastry cook. I want to get into your philosophy now. You, you've got an amazing kitchen. We just walked through it. it mm-hmm. it's, um, oh, it's the best. It's, it's like, it's, it's untouchable. Uh, it's so big. It's fully equipped. You have how many in the pastry department? Working um, I think right now I have eight people. Eight I have, people. I have, I have a AM sous chef, a PM sous chef, and then... Six cooks. So. so, how many covers a day do you do? How many pieces do you actually put out with that many? Um, that kind of yeah, team. It, the the covers, the amount of covers, like it, it fluctuates. Like it's you know it's the week after Fourth of July, so we're a little slower. Yeah, but um, let's say in your heyday, you know. Um, I mean, in, in like really busy times, you know. Not Christmas, but not, you know, not the holidays. Like normal, let's say normally, in April. yeah, normally. Uh, we hover around 200 covers, maybe slightly more than 200 covers. At night? Yeah, a la carte for dinner. Right. Um, we're open for lunch five days a week, so we hover around 50 to 60 mm-hmm. for lunch. Mm-hmm. That can go up or down depending on... I don't really understand why we don't do 500 for lunch every day because it's it's, it's so $39. Good. It's ridiculous. Oh like if God. I order, if I order, you know... Chinese food at three o'clock in the morning. It's going to cost more than coming to lunch at Del Posto. You know, and I have to eat it on the floor of my apartment. You know, so really? I don't even have a. I don't, I don't get a purse store or anything. You know, so. Um, but yeah, so, but we also have private dining. Um, part of the reason that, you know, the Joe and Mario and Lydia built this restaurant was to do, you know, super high end private dining, mm-hmm. um, and we do a lot of that. And, you know, we have four private rooms, so we can do four parties at once with different menus in addition to regular a la carte service for dinner um, and and then lunch. Um, and then we have, I mean, specifically for us in the in pastry, we have probably 15 different cookies and pedophores that we do um, because a lot of people come here for different reasons. You know, people come to, this isn't like a sequestered, foodie experience restaurant people come here for all sorts of different reasons and that's great and I love that um that I mean this isn't a chef's table situation 19 seats 20 seats where everyone gets exactly the same thing in like a banquet fashion like this is in its heart even though it's big and has private dining rooms is, is like you know it's like a mom and pop restaurant on like the highest level you know so so it's I mean people choose what they want 
people get to choose what they want to eat. And, um, but it's also, there's a bunch of, like, people come here for business meetings. Um, our guests will come here for, you know, the wine list here is completely insane. So some of our guests come here just to drink wine, and the food is sort of a secondary thing. So it's our job, especially at the end of the meal, to make sure that we deliver to the guest whatever it is that they that they want. You know, okay, so. so let's talk about the ego of not only the chef but the cooks. Um, because you're in this profession because you love it. Of course. And you're constantly, um, let's say, striving to put the best thing on the plate. And you really work very hard to make it to your benchmark, which is the top in New York. Right. How much ego should be invested in a dessert or any dish in the restaurant versus what the customer wants? And do you get... You, you, your ego is so in check, I can't believe it. We've been talking a lot, and you're so much about hospitality in the diner. But the, the cooks that work for you, they want to learn, they want to push. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. How, how does that all work in your kitchen? What's your philosophy? Um, well, my philosophy is, and I, I really try to instill in all of my staff and all the cooks, and even like the, you know, the savory cooks, too, um, is that it, it is about hospitality and it is about what the guest what the guest wants and we you know we listen to because you know they're like I love New York City I've only lived in New York for seven years but I love it so much and I can't imagine ever living anywhere anywhere else ever so what I like kind of the point I try to get across is like like I love living in New York City and the reason I get to live in New York City is is because I get paid by Del Posto which is really means I get paid by the guest who's coming in to eat here and I don't want to lose that. Like, I want to be able to live in New York City and, like, do all the awesome things that New York City allows me. And, like I said, so then, it, yes, it is about making sure that that guest is, leaves just, like, totally psyched and pumped and tells all their friends and comes back and makes it, like, a regular thing, even though, you know, this is, you know, can be a special occasion-type restaurant because, obviously, it's very expensive, but still... I just want, and even for lunch, you know, when it is less expensive, I want everyone to leave just so psyched, and that's why... So how do you conceive your dishes? Um, do you look at the regular, the savory menu? Oh, for sure, for sure, for that? sure. Um, I, how, how, clo- how close do you collaborate with Mark? Oh, like, constantly. Um, in fact, it's funny, we, um, a lot of times I'll come up with a component, and then he'll be poking his head in the in the back, and he'll kind of look at it, and the next thing I know, like... He's got, say, like the antipasti sous chef, like stealing that component and then using it on an antipasti dish. And then sort of like, it's sort of like a playful one-upmanship kind of thing. So then I'll poke my head around and I'll find something and then I'll steal that and I'll use it on a dessert. So, um, But, and then a lot of times there'll be a clash where we can't actually use the same thing in the same menu. So then I'll have to wait. You know, obviously he's the chef, so he gets first choice. Like, so uh-huh. when it's, when he runs it out on using something, then I'll bring it back and use it on something else, so... But, um, I mean, for me and, and for for Ladner specifically, like, our whole thing is that the meal should be this seamless experience, you know, where what, how you start and how you end should feel like it came from the same mind. Because mm-hmm. um, a lot of times at restaurants, like, there's a very specific savory style, and then all of a sudden you get to dessert and, like... There's a switch gets a, a switch gets flipped, and all of a sudden you're in a different restaurant where that you're it's just a different style completely or it's just like you're you're getting this very specific style of food and then all of a sudden you're getting like a classic french dessert or whatever mm-hmm. that doesn't really make sense with the rest of the food mm-hmm. um so it's really important for me and for, and and for chef ladner to make sure that we w- really do work together and it's always it always bums me out when i hear about um say, like, a, a colleague or a friend who's a pastry chef at a place, and they're like, yeah, the chef's kind of a jerk, like, I don't like him, or I don't like her, and I just have to, it's so hard to, like, like Work that... with them. Right, and, that, and, and that bums... get a whole experience. Right, that bums me out so much, because, like, I, the fact, I mean, in a way, it's sort of like I won the lottery by landing here. And yet again, that's another sort of one of the accidents or things I didn't really try to do, is, is getting here. How did you um, get here? Um... Long, make a long story really short. I um I'd moved to New York. I was working at a restaurant on the Upper West Side, 
Um, I didn't really want to move to New York. My girlfriend at the time lived here. And I was working in D.C. at a restaurant called Comey, which I loved. Tiny little 35-seat restaurant. Open five days a week. Um, same crew every day. Um, kind of like the dream restaurant that, that every chef sort of wants. And a beautiful, awesome. I mean, still, probably the, it's probably the best restaurant in D.C. now. Um, and it was just it was a blast working there. We just had so much fun and just so small and so tight. Um, and then... My girlfriend Stella at the time was like, "Well, she had lived. She was living here. She's like, well, you kind of got to move to New York, otherwise we're done.' And so, and and I was older. I was I was thirty five at the point at that at that time. So I didn't really want to move to New York. It was expensive and uh, you know, Change. yeah. I was, I you was, were happy where was, you were, yeah. yeah. But so I moved here, and then ended up working in a restaurant on the Upper West Side, just sort of temporarily, and then found out that Del Posto had lost their pastry chef. Um, at which point. And I don't know if I recommend this, but this is what happened. But uh, I got off my, I got off work at the other place, and then I think I, I, I just went out with some friends, and I, I was definitely well beyond the point where I should have been writing a letter to Del Posto because I was definitely fairly inebriated. Um, anyway, wrote, ended up writing this, found out they needed a pastry chef, wrote them a letter, and then mail, emailed it to the only email address I could find on the Del Posto website, which was the private party email. email. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then I think I probably hit send and like then passed out on the floor or something. So, um, And then forgot about it completely. And then the next Monday, that was on a Friday, the next Monday they had called me and were asked me to come in and meet with Ladner, you know. So, um, so once again, sort of unintentional and sort of accidental. But... Uh, Yes, but that's... Did and then, the two of you hit it off the minute you started t- talking? Um, we... I mean, I'd, I'd been... A, I was a huge fan of his... I mean, I, I'd never been to Del Posto. Um, I knew a lot of people that helped open up the restaurant because I worked at Campanile in L.A. Um, and a lot of those... A lot of the crew from when I worked there in, say, like, 2004, like, helped... Like, Matt Molina helped... Mm-hmm. Were, like, opening sous chefs at, at this restaurant. So I knew of Del Posto, but I'd never been here. Mm-hmm. Um, but I loved... Lupo was... Even even though I had just moved to New York, like before I lived in New York, like Lupo was like yeah. the promised land. It was like, it was the greatest. It was the best. You know, I still love Lupo. I mean, my favorite thing in the world is to go to Lupo, sit at the bar, have a glass of wine, have a bowl of cacio e pepe, and it's just the best. You know, so I obviously was like hugely excited to work, or the, I, even the prospect of working with Ladner here. Because I was such a fan. Because Ladner was known as the muse of. Oh my god! He was, he yeah, was yeah, the one. no, he was. Yeah, yeah of he course. He was the one who made it. Yeah. Um, which is funny too, because like I remember when I had to do my first tasting here, um, which was a, like a seven-course dessert tasting with it was like a cheese course and a bunch of different courses that were. That was my you know my tryout to. To try to get the job, you know. Um, and it was funny because I was so excited, and Mario's going to kill me for saying this, but I was so excited about working with Ladner that I forgot that Mario Batali had anything to do with the restaurant. Um, he's totally going to kill me for this. Um, to the point where like, I'd gotten my tasting set up, and um, I was about ready to go and deliver the first course in the private dining room, and the chef de cuisine at the time was like, so uh, you want to meet Mario? And I was like, I was like oh, yeah. Mario he's, who? He's no. like, oh, yeah, he's a part of this. So. Yeah, I'm, I'm dead. Pretty much so, but no, I mean the the whole thing was like I was, I was just really excited to, for the prospect of even yeah. like working for a second yeah, with Ladner. And, and All right, well, we're kind of running out of time, and for a lot of people listening to this, you know, we we have um, what I'm told is a million unique listeners listening on mm. I don't know this particular show, but on the net, on the radio sh- uh, network every month. And over 200 countries. Um, and so there are a lot of people who haven't tasted any of your desserts. And we're, I'm sure they're sort of saying, well, well what, tell me, you know, <laughs> describe two dishes, one of your choice. But I want you to describe, we just walked through the kitchens and we went into one of the walk-ins and there was a tray of green strawberries. And I said, what do you do with these? This is so classic Brooke Headley. So um, I, I, I want you to describe what you do with the green Strawberries, and then tell us about another dessert you do that you think is representative of your style. Um, well, the thing with the green strawberries is, like, as I was saying before, like, I don't consider myself to be the most groundbreaking original 
pastry chef or whatever. But I think I take things from different areas and kind of like put them back together. And like that's that's what I love to do, and that's what I love to do with music and with food too. So the green strawberries thing, I found about found out about it through through stuff that would hap- was happening at Noma, where in in um, Copenhagen where they're taking green strawberries and pickling them, um, which is just so cool, you know. So. Um, basically for that for the dish that we use those for and they're I think it's the last ones we can get this year um, they're they're sort of like lightly pickled almost like a well they're like unripened strawberries we should right, right, say right, they're right. not a cultivar that happens to be green they're the unripe strawberries picked out from the right ripe and the right and the cool thing about that is I mean if you if you read or see interviews with Rene Redzepi like he'll talk about the the green strawberry that's perfectly unripe which so that concept is so cool like you know that's so awesome so um so using that technique or that idea is definitely like me totally ripping someone else off but also like sort of like paying homage to it and like so tell them the how, what time. you do with it um well we so they're lightly pickled almost like a bread and butter pickle and then when they go on the plate, we shake them in a like a citrus sugar, so it's orange zest or tangerine zest and granulated sugar um, at the last minute. So when they're on the plate, the sugar isn't melted, so you actually get some of that crunch from the granulated sugar, which is something that, like you know, I guess if you're going to cooking school or whatever, they would tell you no, no, don't ever do that because that's that's wrong. You're not supposed to taste the crunch of the sugar, like or like you know, like if you put sugar in like iced tea. And, and yeah. mix it up like it's like having sand in your shoes. Yeah, I I, I, I kind of <laughs> like that. Like I've like like if you know if you get like a a thing of simple syrup to put in your iced tea, so it's perfectly smooth. Like I kind of like the little grit and you know, like being able to see it or whatever. So that's sort of the inspiration for having that on the strawberries. But the rest of the dish is a uh, um, it's a fennel cake, so it's sautéed fennel um, that's sort of incorporated into a uh, kind of like a pistachio cake. Um, Almost like a carrot cake, where the the cooked sautéed fennel that we've cooked in olive oil becomes the carrot part of that cake, um, and then we serve that with a mint gelato, where we're we're using chocolate mint. So we're getting it from the green market now. It's beautiful stuff. Um, so and we use bags and bags and bags of this stuff to just get a couple bain maries of the gelato and super green. My sous chef Kim has figured out this way to make. Um, it's, it's totally genius to make this like bright, bright, bright green, perfect gelato base using, say, like mint or basil or tarragon or any sort of green herb, you know. And it's so gr- they're so green. It's, a lot of times we'll have multiple different versions at the same time, and I won't even be able to tell them apart because they're just like vibrantly, sort of violently green, you know. But in this case, it's mint. So, so you have the mint gelato, the fennel cake. Um, we do some candied fennel, the green strawberries that are dredged in the citrus sugar. Um, yeah, and I guess that's yeah, that's the whole dish, and it's not something that's ever specifically on the menu, but it's something that I'll have around for if I have someone come in that I really want to give it to, or a lot of times like uh, you know I'll, I'll I usually have like three or four dishes that aren't even listed on the menu that I tell to the, to the captains and the front leaders at the meeting, and I'm like you know if if you get a table that wants something like this or this or this, like I also have this stuff, you know. So there's always it's so tell us a. Uh, t- one of the desserts that you've done that you're most proud? Um, honestly, the, probably the most proud is the eggplant dessert, which mm-hmm. is, um, it's basically like a sweet eggplant crostata. It's, it's, um, and then we serve it with a sheep's milk, stracciatella, gelato, and then chocolate and olive oil sauce. Very simple. Um, mm. It's just, but um, it's, it's a variation on... The chocolate and eggplant is a really classic combination in the Amalfi Coast. So, um, around Naples, like it's, and even down as far as in in the Calabria and Sicily, it's, it's it's a very common thing, and it's something that like I'd read about, but I never tried, and I never tried it over there. And same thing with uh, Ladner, like he'd he'd actually tried it and wanted to like experiment, experiment and have a version here, but had it have a version that made sense at Del Posto, you know, so. We practiced and did, like, R&D on it for, I think, like, a year. We tried a bunch of different things. Like, <coughs> um, a lot of them were totally gross because, like, eggplant is very specific. And, like, if you do one thing the wrong way, you're going to get something that's pretty gnarly. And we got some <laughs> really, 
yeah. We, yeah, we made all sorts of mistakes with that, but then it's funny, we ended up what we, we what we ended up with it was sort of like based on the traditional dish, which is traditionally it's almost like eggplant parmesan. So it's mm-hmm. like fried breaded eggplant, but then it's covered in dark chocolate and usually has like ricotta and orange. Mm. Um, so, but that seemed too heavy. So we wanted to have something a little lighter. So we basically made this like mascarpone dough and then, um, and then, so we're, I'm not, in a way it was like taking from all these different areas that I'd learned stuff from. So it had, and then we ended up using like a, almost like a frangipan base for it, which is something I learned, you know, working at Galileo. And then when I did work at the Ritz-Carlton, we used that a lot. Um, but I hadn't used that in a while. So, so we had the dough and then we smeared the frangipan on it. And then, so I'm almost thinking in like sort of like apple tart now. But then, so we started like layering eggplant on that and baking it, but it wasn't, it was cooking weird because the eggplant was raw. And we were trying to figure out what to do. And then we ended up basically getting like a George Foreman like gr- grill, like the really? lean, lean the mean George reducing yeah, yeah, right. grilling machine or whatever. And then we took the eggplant and we like tossed in olive oil and salt and then we grilled it in the, in the, the George Foreman grill, grill, of course, because that's what you use when you work at a four-star restaurant in right. Manhattan. You use <laughs> infomercial products, you know. Um, so we, and, but it came out great. And it was, we sort of like par-cooked it and then, and then layered it on the, the crust on top of the French pan with, you know, more, a little bit more olive oil and some honey and some raw sugar and a little bit of butter. So like at that point, I'm thinking like, you know, the first apple tart that I made when I worked at Galileo, but, you know, slightly mutated. Um, and it ended up, it came out awesome. And then I really, really wanted it to look like, almost like a tart you know, like really glossy, but I didn't want to have it be cloyingly sweet and I didn't want to bake it upside down. So we figured out a way to basically take vinegar and honey and make a glaze. So it's almost equal parts vinegar and honey. So it's pretty... Wow, that, the complexity um, and the flavor with that. And then what we would do is, and what we still do now, because it's still something we have around, is it comes out of the oven, and then we brush it with that, so it gives it this instant glaze. I call it, like, fake tartatan, you know, yeah. so. Um, but it's also got a, a tartness to it, you know. And then the eggplant is like a sponge, so at this point the eggplant has soaked up vinegar and honey, salt, and olive oil. Um, and it's it's really delicious, like, it's... and. Then we serve it with the gelato, which is a ricotta gelato. So then going back to the original dish, there's ricotta in the dish, you know, so. And then um, we sauce it at the table with a chocolate and olive oil sauce, which isn't like a traditional pastry chef chocolate sauce. It's, it's really just chocolate and olive oil and salt with no recipe just to taste. So you taste the olive oil, the olive oil thins out the sauce, usually a chocolate, and then enough salt to give it some kick, you know. And then that's the, that's the sauce for the plate. So it's it's almost ridiculously simple in its appearance because it's just a bunch of slices of eggplant on this like torn piece of crust with a scoop of ice cream and some sauce on it. But I'm really proud of it because we went through all these different phases of trying to figure it out and it, and, and it, it sort of adheres to this traditional Italian thing but at the same time shows that we were, you know, like definitely thinking in another direction to, to sort of take it in another direction. and. And we figured it out, and I remember it was it was great because we, I fed it to the sous chefs and they liked it. I fed it to Ladner and he loved it. And then Mario was here one day, and and Ladner was like really excited. He's like, yeah, yeah, come on, you got Brooks figured out the eggplant thing. You got to try it. And he was, he's like, yeah, I don't know, I don't know. I mean, I've had the real thing in Italy, and I, I'm really not into it. Like, I'd really can you make me some zeppolis or something, you know? So, um, but we fed it, to, we we made it for him, and he he thought it was great too. So then it was like, all right, we got it. So. We actually put it on the tasting menu that we had at that time. That became the dessert on the tasting menu. So, And that's what we sold the most of. And so hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these went out for that. I guess it was on the tasting menu for like almost a year or whatever. And no one, only I think one person didn't like it or no. like or sent it back. And it was weird because it was, it was risky to, to, to put an eggplant and chocolate dessert at the end of like a tasting menu at, at a restaurant. I mean... That isn't where the guests and the perception isn't necessarily that this is like an avant-garde, crazy restaurant, right. you know. But, and that's something that, like, I, I try to get across to my staff and then I try to get across in the food that we make here is that a lot of times, even if it seems weird or slightly off, 
it's really just, in the end, a comforting dish. That you want to come back for more. That you Right, exactly. So, and that's... Well, I want to come back for more. We've run out of time. Okay. (laughs) So, (laughs) even your interview is like that. So, this has just really been an honor and a pleasure. Thanks for taking the time. Thanks for for stopping by. And I want to thank our producers, Jack Inslee and Robin Cohen. And this is Dorothy Can Hamilton, and you've been listening to Chef's Story with Brooke Hadley. Hadley? Why? I'm sorry. It's it's all right. It's all right. (laughs) No problem. No problem. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.